Welcome to another uh, exciting uh, conversation on the Worthy for 30 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Tash, and I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, uh, Cole Richmond, the founder and CEO of Bottom Bunk uh, Sneaker House, and Zoe Orchingwa, CEO and founder, or co-founder, Zoe, co-founder of, of, of Emilio. I just want to make sure we're, we're, we're uh, correct off the bat with our, with our titles. And uh, the, the reason why I wanted to bring Cole and Zoe uh, to the, onto the podcast is for, for a simple reason. I've had conversations with Cosmarte, the founder and CEO of Combody. I've had conversations with Andrew Glazier of The Five Ventures, who mentioned, like, after I spoke to him, you need to talk to Cole. Uh, and, it's, and it's all around this, uh, this premise of second chances, of how can we work together as a community, as well as the listeners, on how do we, how do we combat um, mass incarceration? How do we elevate uh, folks who've gone through the system to really uh, grasp and maintain their second chance? And I thought having Cole and Zoe on the show would be a, a great way, a great conduit for the listeners to, to, to hear some insights firsthand on how to, again, uh, uh, join uh, and lean into this, uh, this topic, this cause. Uh, one thing that, that I've, I've seen from my research is that the recidivism rate, meaning the person who's come out of the, the prison system, is 30% on average throughout the country. Speaking with Andrew at Defy Ventures, uh, based on their entrepreneur and training uh, program and some of their you know, both in prison as well as out of prison uh, programming, they're able to, to have or, or greatly reduce that recidivism rate, which is tremendous based on that intervention, based on you know, the, the, the personal development and the professional development that Defy Ventures is able to, to provide. So um, I really want to start the, the conversation. You know, we'll start with Cole. Because you're you're in the middle of my screen, uh, and I'd love to you know understand how you uh, founded uh, Bonham Bank and and again your path uh, to to becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I was released from prison after doing eight years in May of 2020. COVID was in full swing. I had to go to a halfway house, and when I got out, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had obviously ideas from when I was in prison on what I wanted to do, how I wanted to make money and all of these other grandiose ideas. And I came home to a world that was completely closed down. I went to a halfway house. My roommate in the halfway house was actually already buying and selling shoes online. And we were in our rooms for 23 hours a day. It took me about a month before I got so bored sitting in there. And I had to ask him, what was he doing all day in front of the computer? And he slowly started walking me through it. And he and I kind of started a business together in rehab, buying and selling shoes online. When the world finally opened up, I started going out there and trying to be the first person in line at Foot Locker, trying to figure out ways to facilitate getting more shoes. And rather quickly, things picked up really fast. And I decided to open up a, take it one step further and open up a shoe store. And the caveat that I had was, is that I had to be aligning with my primary purpose as a human, which is helping men and women coming home from prison. I had felt like God had given me a really unique experience to be in a position to help people based on my personal life. And I wanted to take advantage of that. And, you know, shoes is obviously a great energy point, but it also is very deeply rooted in culture, especially including prison culture. And so it was a, a really easy fit to kind of get, get to work on what I feel like my bigger life mission is. Excellent. And, and, and moving to you, so I'd uh, love to understand your, your path to, to uh, helping found Emilio and, and, and the reason why Emilio is, uh, again, scaling its mission. Yeah. So I founded Emilio both because I had a personal connection to Matt 
mass incarceration. Uh, growing up in, in Hartford and West Hartford, Connecticut, I unfortunately had uh, a ton of close friends who ended up uh, incarcerated. Uh, and that really kind of set me on a path to better try to understand the system and, and hopefully provide solutions to uh, fundamentally improve it. And uh, I'm not atypical. Over half of all Americans or adult Americans have had uh, some a close relative that's been incarcerated. So it's a, a problem that really touches uh, almost uh, every single uh, citizen in the country. And so uh, after my undergraduate degree, I actually was fortunate enough to get a scholarship uh, to go to University of Cambridge, uh, where I was studying mass incarceration uh, for, my, for my master's degree. Um, so I was able to do a lot of comparative analysis between the U.S. system uh, the, the UK system, uh, Scandinavian systems, and, and German systems, really looking for solutions uh, because those systems have much better uh, recidivism rates than we do, much more humane facilities. Uh, but at the end of that work, I realized that one of the most overlooked areas when it comes to American criminal justice is the actual carceral experience. Uh, a lot of folks are looking at policy. A lot of uh, folks are really concentrating on sentencing reform, which is really crucial. Uh, but the average person is going to spend at least, uh, average incarcerated person spend at least four years in, in prison. Uh, and that's a long amount of time. And uh, as I was doing research, what I uncovered was that there was a lot of predatory companies uh, that are exploiting uh, these vulnerable populations and their families in a terrible way. And one of the worst actors are, were the, or are the prison uh, phone companies. And folks, uh, and I'm sure Cole can talk about this, folks are, are charged in some jurisdictions up to a dollar a minute for a phone call. They're charged a dollar for e-messaging. Uh, so it's a very, very predatory system that generates about $1.2 billion every year just off the back of, of low-income folks. Uh, so my vision was um, recognize how crucial communication technology is uh, and the impact that it has for folks post-release because they were able to maintain those strong bonds with their families. Uh, my vision was to build a company that could provide completely free, uh, modern communication technology uh, to the incarcerated completely free of charge. Uh, and on the back of that, also start providing educational uh, program and educational software. Um, so we got what well, we launched the first uh, uh, product uh, right at the height of COVID, uh, March of 2022, while you know prisons had shut down all in-person visits and the importance of digital communication became all the more important. Um, so I founded this company, you know, really with an eye towards my younger self, uh, the challenges that I had trying to stay in contact with, with some of my uh, friends, the challenges uh, their relatives had, and the importance of giving folks a second chance to not only stay connected with their communities, uh, but to have the opportunity to come out of prison with an education, with certifications to start rebuilding their lives uh, post-release. Excellent. And, and Cole, when, when you and I first connected, you mentioned that there was a limited amount of time that you saw or spoke to your family and friends while you were incarcerated. Can, can, do you want to speak to what Zoe and, and Emilio is trying to achieve here? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, number one, I, I can only speak for the California state prison system. Number one, you're only allowed a 15 minute phone call a day. That phone call as, as he spoke about was, is about $8 a phone call in California can definitely be taxing. And, and with the limited amount of time that you could actually have on the phone, the difficulties to even something as simple as inspire change with family. Obviously, by the time that I had gotten into prison, I had been struggling with drugs. I had disconnected from my family. And to be able to you know, reset that relationship on a positive note or even have the positive framework to have them you know, be excited for me to come home that I wasn't going to go right back was very difficult on a 15 minute phone call or also, you know, 
prisons are shutting down for COVID, no phones. You, you go to the hole, there's no phones and, and access becomes really difficult. And to be inspired for opportunity through a letter is not the same way as hearing someone's voice and hearing enthusiasm and hearing love and connecting with the human in that way. And, and sometimes, especially in California, where it's a big state, the access to visiting is, is none. You know, my mom wasn't going to drive 10 hours to go see me in a prison in Northern California wasn't available to her to be able to sit in a car like that. If you're not seeing your family for eight years and you're only getting to talk to them maybe once a week, it, it can get really trying. Gotcha. And, and and so back to you, in terms of the impact that you and Emilio have, have had on combating mass incarceration, are any uh, any anecdotes that you can share about, again, uh, facilitating this 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 peer-to-peer uh, communication at a, at a limited to no cost for, for those who are incarcerated and speaking with their family and friends? Yes, yes. And I think the beauty of us being a technology company means that our users, their feedback is public. Um, so if you go to the App Store, or the Google Play Store, and you just look, just look up Emilio, uh, you'll see thousands and thousands of user reviews just really speaking to the impact uh, of communication that has had on them. Um, so the first product we launched is actually uh, something that Cole mentioned, letters. So one of the most uh, prevalent way folks stay in contact with their families on the inside is, is through letter sending. But if you think about in the 21st century, you know, not many people sit around and handwrite letters, especially young folks. Uh, they're using their phones, they're using emails and texts. So the first idea that we had was how do we make this process a lot easier, uh, which would then increase the rate of communication folks would have with their families. Um, so what we did was build a mobile app uh, that allowed folks to send letters, uh, postcard, photos, uh, games and other content uh, right from their phone. They didn't have to go to CVS or Walgreens. They didn't have to pay for postal stamps. Um, and so they wrote those messages or attached those photos. And on the back end, we use a, a mailing API to deliver uh, those letters. And one of the crucial features that folks really love about it that you see in the reviews is the ability to track the letter. One of the challenges folks have is that they never really know uh, because uh, correctional officers uh, monitor all the, the, the letters. It, it's hard for them to know when their loved ones are going to receive it, especially in important days like birthdays or Christmas. Um, so that opportunity to both track the letter uh, has been really impactful. And, and, and you know, for folks uh, on the outside who don't really understand you know, the cultural experience, folks might be wondering, you know, how can a letter be so important? Uh, but the moment we realized that we had to build that that feature first, uh, we were working with uh, formerly incarcerated folks in the New Haven area, uh, and a formerly incarcerated person by the name of Richard Watkins told us that uh, th there was no better moment for him than the sound of a letter sliding through his door, uh, that the joy that that letter could give him would last him up to a week. Um, and so we started that, and we scaled that to, to touch over 1.25 million people. Uh, but we knew that we had to build a real-time communication system. What Cole mentioned is that, you know, hearing the voice of your loved one is, is vitally important. Um, so what we've done is build a video calling system, e-messaging, and voice calls that uh, we first launched in, in, power in, in Iowa. So we are the primary provider of uh, digital communications in the entire prison system. We also scaled to Colorado. Uh, we're scaling our educational platform to Rhode Island and Mississippi and, and moving pretty fast. Um, but one anecdote that I can give you is uh, one of the first users uh, was a woman in Iowa Correctional Institution for Women, and she'd been incarcerated for, for decades. And she'd never seen her grandchild uh, in person. Um, uh, she'd just been born. It was COVID. Um, and she was able to log into our system for the first time, was able to see her, her, her child. Um, we have stories like that. Folks haven't seen their homes. They haven't seen the parts that they grew up around. Um, so being able to just kind of have that connection, uh, that visual connection to the outside world, but also to be able to see your loved one's faces has been really important. 
But as far as data, um, there's a bunch of data, uh, a bunch of research that's been done that shows that uh, maintaining strong bonds with your family while incarcerated can reduce recidivism by uh, up to 56%. Um, some studies put, put it at 13%, depending on the rate of contact. We're working with the University of Chicago to actually study our intervention for uh, the next five years to really provide those granular data on uh, just the impact of our intervention. Uh, but yeah, we have you know uh, tons and tons of, of, of stories and user feedback, but um, it, it was on the back of that that we felt we needed to build an educational tool as well, because uh, we were hearing from our users who were post-release that they were having a difficult time finding employment. Uh, Cole has talked about this. There's really not a lot of opportunities for you with the criminal record. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was uh, build an educational platform on top of our communication system uh, that allowed folks to uh, get free uh, books, ebooks, audiobooks, uh, be able to take uh, college courses, um, and uh, also take asynchronous courses as, as well. And, and we're super excited to launch that in Rhode Island and uh, in Mississippi in the coming in the coming months, and hopefully scale that uh, across the country. No, that's that, that's that's excellent. Um, in terms of your your work or Emilio, your and Emilio's work uh, with the different prison systems, are you working directly with the prison system, or are you going to the state level to to broker these relationships? Just would we'll love to understand how that works. Yeah, so basically, prisons are run by the state, so we work with state DOCs, but we also work with county jails, which are either run by the county or, or city jail run by the city. Um, so we often are, are engaging with uh, high-level staff, so uh, commissioners, uh, secretaries, but we work really closely as well with correctional uh, staff. Uh, one of the things that really surprised us uh, was in Iowa, uh, just how excited the correctional staff was to be able to provide free communication, uh, which is, might seem counterintuitive because I think we often get the sense that anyone that works in prison is, is a boogeyman and is there to kind of oppress folks. But often what you'll find is that a lot of correctional guards are coming from the very same community uh, as folks who are incarcerated. These are really tough jobs that are low paying. Um, so one of the things we were able to do in Iowa was really improve the, the quality and the time that correctional staff could use. So by making it very easy for them with the modern technology to approve visitation, both in person, uh, video calls, e-messaging, to be able to do that work seamlessly uh, and be able to give people more privileges, right? If, if you know that um, uh, this technology is good, and that and that folks are, are been improved. Um, there's no need for you know over surveillance. Um, so some of the technologies that we we are building is uh, to make the carceral experience communication experience for folks a, a, a lot more private uh, for families as well. But yeah, we work with folks across uh, uh, the entire prison system, um, and and that's one of the unique things about you know providing uh, communication tech in prison, unlike a Zoom or Google where there's two clients. We actually have three clients. Uh, the family and loved ones on the outside or attorneys or clinicians, uh, the incarcerated person, and then the DOC as well needs to have a security dashboard to uh, facilitate that. Um, but yeah, we, we work with pretty much uh, anyone in the DOC, but but obviously our mission is focused on those who are incarcerated and their loved ones. And, and uh, we're always meeting with them, getting feedback on new products and, and getting their insights into everything that, that we do. No, that, that, that's excellent. So for, for both for you and for you, Zoe, and, and also for Cole, you know, Zoe, you hit on something very, uh, very interesting, which is, you know, the, the correction officer uh, in Iowa, for example, was, was elated, was excited, you know, that, that they were getting this piece of technology to make it easier for those incarcerated to communicate back home and to their friends. You know, in terms of combating mass incarceration, uh, we'll love to you know, understand. And I know this is a much more nuanced conversation or question, but 
is it is it required to have all these different constituents, you know, on the same page in order to to fight this common fight of, okay, these people, uh, these folks are in the system. They're working through the system. We're here. They're here to rehabilitate themselves. They're here to to with with the hope that they're being released soon. To they're developing uh, hopefully their their second chance or what they want to pursue once they're released, which is great. Again, you know, we're, we're targeting those that are incarcerated or going through the system. But is it also required to have those correction officers, the state, uh, I'm just trying to, uh, the employers on the outside, just everyone singing the same tune in order to really make uh, combating mass incarceration and, and beating recidivism down a reality? Um, when we look at the data, you see that uh, 50% of folks who are incarcerated, uh, there's a really famous Brookings study that was published not too long ago that found that you know 50% of everyone who's incarcerated had no income the entire eight year before their incarceration. And when you look at a year before, that number jumps to 80%. So poverty is a key driver for mass incarceration. And it's crucial that everyone is it's hands on deck trying to solve this problem, right? So if you look at you know the prison rate and while we have mass incarceration, there's obviously the admission, right? 600,000 plus people are coming into prisons uh, every year and 13 million cycling in and out of jails every year. And then you have what you mentioned, recidivism statistics in the U.S. are extremely high. So there's both the, the incoming and uh, the admission and the readmission. And so what Amelia really is trying to do is we're focusing on making sure folks never come back to prison. We're focusing on that readmission side. Once folks are on the inside, are we helping them stay connected with their families? Are we helping them stay get connected with their lawyers, with uh, mental health clinicians, uh, with educational opportunities so that they never come back? So, so you know, I've, I've quoted some of the communication recidivism statistics, um, but education is another a really important thing. There was a RAND study that found that uh, and getting access to any kind of uh, prison education or prison programming can reduce recidivism by, by 43%. And so you need uh, uh, providers um, like ourselves, technology companies like ourselves, uh, but you also definitely need the, the correctional guards and the prison system, right? If they don't let in these technologies, if they're not forward thinking, um, then we can never deliver the programs that, that we want to. Uh, but, on, but on a broader scale, right, if we don't look at our sentencing policies, the way we do policing, uh, some of these uh, terrible mandatory minimums that we've in place, we are going to keep so many people coming into the system. Um, so we need everyone. We need uh, legislators to be able to revise some of these predatory or, or misguided uh, harsh sentences that we provide, which aren't bearing much fruit. Right. If a significant proportion of folks are coming right back into prison, then, you know, what good is it doing us to have them there for 10, 15 plus years? Uh, and then you need forward thinking, you know, uh, correctional officers and, and commissioners who are going to give these opportunities or allow innovative thinking to come in. Uh, and then as well as the public. Right. You need a public that is willing and courageous enough to say, look, you know, we you are not the worst thing that you've done. Right. Stealing that from Brian Stevenson. You know, people are not the worst mistake that, that, that they've made. Uh, and given that that card is stacked against a lot of us, right, eighty percent had no income prior. Uh, it's it, it's a, a very difficult situation that one is in that leads them to to incarceration. So I think we we need all hands on deck for sure. Yeah, I from being on the other side and hearing hearing what Zoe's talking about is really interesting because it's obviously it's not a thought process that I've had before. But obviously, you know my. In prison, everyone is looking for opportunity. They're looking for that privilege. They're trying to find what is going to make their stay more comfortable. In in my experience, not all you know correctional officers are also inclined to provide that. And and but from their standpoint, like if I'm being objective, is 
they also got to keep it safe and make sure everyone is safe in there, you know, and in order for them to help facilitate doing their job better. I mean, I went into prison. There was people sleeping in the day rooms in the common areas, followed monk cells. They were, you know, overpopulated by 100 percent in some prisons. How can they effectively do their job and provide privilege and provide programming and provide all of these things if it's just not safe? And I think that like creating the opportunity through the phones and giving, you know, giving these new privileges, but, you know, FaceTime visits and providing that not only is going to keep the make the inmate feel like they have a little bit more to lose and before they're going to go inside and make a bad decision. So you know, that incentivizes the correctional officers to, you know, keep giving them a little bit more rope in order to help them to be able to have have some more privileges, you know, loosen the the noose around their neck, so to speak, which will also, you know, provide opportunity for programming to come inside, even if it's virtually. You know, I was at a prison that was really far away. There was only one group on the yard for the whole for one day a week for all, the whole month. And the waiting list for that group was, you know, three years long. And so how do we use video visits in order to facilitate Alcoholics Anonymous meetings with people from the outside, from hospitals and institutions or other learning processes, substance abuse programming that can be more effective with, you know, I went to substance abuse programming in prison. The people that were running the program had never done, had never had substance abuse. And one of them was, was an ex-sergeant correctional officer. Their heart was all in the correct place. Their teaching and ability to be effective in substance abuse programming was very little. And, and that's just basically pure opportunity just based on, you know, geographic location. So the video visits can open up so many different ways for programming. It's, it's, it's probably endless, more than we can even think about. I know you, Zoe was talking about, you know, uh, healthcare professionals or lawyers, you know, they do a lot of video visits um, with your doctor in prison. Telecom makes it a little bit easier, but like taking it one step further, like how are we Im- implementing mental health through that as well is really interesting to me. Again, you know, I believe I had a divinely inspired journey to get to this place. I went to jail for my first time at 14 years old. Um, I was released this last time when I was 35. I'd been to jail many times in between. And when I came out this time, I, I had was able to take a real clear, hard look at what happened. Um, you know, why was I not successful the other times when I came home from prison? How was this time going to be different? And the first thing, the first thing that I had never really addressed was was my mental health because finances or family or these other areas became my priority when I came home. I had to go chase getting money. I had to go chase finding that job or or find the right girl because I hadn't met that person yet. And which took what took the focus off of me, which kept, uh, you know, my mental health sick, for lack of a better word. And I was continually in this struggle and I would immediately slide back into drug uses because that had became my main coping mechanism since I was 12 years old. And so I was able to recognize that, you know, because the world was stopped, there was no jobs to get. There was nothing to go on. I was forced to look at myself and address my mental health services in order to create more opportunities, which would have been, a you know, bottom bunk or whatever my whatever my journey was supposed to be until I was right with myself. I wouldn't have been had the opportunity to be super successful. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting because the number one thing that I when I was in prison, what I was looking for, I didn't even know it was opportunity. I, I couldn't describe how I was looking for it or what I was looking for. But all I knew is that I wanted an opportunity and I had no idea where it was going to come from. Um, and I And I think that for, you know, 99 percent of 
incarcerated men and women, that's what they need in order to be successful. They need, you know, from a place of hope, you can operate much stronger than from a place of, you know, despair, feeling like you have nothing, um, which is for a lot of people that are incarcerated has been very true for a very long time. You know, some of them don't have family members that have, you know, passed away or have cut them off or they didn't have access to the phone. People weren't writing them. It, it's, you know, it, it can be really lonely in prison. And so imagine when you're coming home to a world with nothing but $200 gate money, opportunity doesn't seem, doesn't seem like in full, you know, in full view to you, you know, parole is not offering those, those olive branches in order to reenter the world in the same capacity. And I feel like as a community, that's our responsibility. If we want, if we want our streets safer, if we want our prisons less crowded to be more impactful, that's, that's us as a community are, are those drivers. Being human, being human, looking out for one another. You know, it's it, what's interesting is like this this common thread that I'm hearing between you know Zoe and his team scaling Emilio and making it easier for those on the inside to communicate with the outside. And Cole, you're you know you, you, you uh, latching on, not uh, latching on, and and really manifesting this this second chance, which is you know bottom bunk and being able to to provide services and help. You know both of you are looking very selflessly at this issue. Uh, and what you're also doing, uh, and, and I'd be remiss not to say it, is creating connection between the people that you come in contact with, whether it's through technology, Zoe, or it's through you, Cole, through your customers, through the, the folks who are coming out who are looking for that, you know, for that hope, for that opportunity. You know, you're, you're putting yourself, Cole, you're putting yourself in, in other people's shoes. Zoe, you're putting yourself in other people's shoes on what is lacking here? And if, and if I provide this service or if I provide this opportunity, what's going to happen? And both of you are, 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 are pouring water on, on a flower that's blossoming, which is, which is, which is amazing. You, you, I think it goes back to, to Zoe's point about it has to be all hands on deck. And I think if, if we can set those examples, I think people will, again, latch on uh, to say, hey, this, even though this does, doesn't impact me directly, it, it could, it's going to have an impact eventually. Which I think is is, is just just tremendous. Um, I, I know we're, we're we're coming up on time. Uh, I'd love to, for, to give both of you just a, a, an opportunity uh, for any uh, parting words or uh, and you know places where if people have people have questions about Emilio about the issues that you're you're tackling where they can go. So uh, Cole, look for uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, this question constantly, you know, is, is how do I, you know, they, they feel inspired by what we're talking about. They feel like this is something that they want to make an impact in. And then it can be difficult to figure out how do you navigate that as, you know, a regular person in the community. And, and obviously there's the easy answers, which is, you know, we always need money to, in order to help operate in more places to, in order to continue to help more people. And the truth is, 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 is as amazing as that is, and I will definitely take it and go to bottombunk.com or to fiveventures.org um, to make donations and you can purchase shoes from us, which is wonderful. The real impact is made is when you're an employer and you're going to offer jobs for people coming home, you're going to be able to create that opportunity. You know, it's really impactful when someone comes home and they do uh, off the bunk programming or defy ventures programming, and we're able to direct them to a to a livable wage that's going to create opportunity with room for growth in into a, a sector that's really impactful for them. You know, we're not having them doing construction in the sun, even though they don't know how to you know <laughs> work with their hands at all. 
you know, it's, right. it's how do we create more jobs in retail for people that are passionate about clothes or shoes? How do we create jobs in other sectors outside of, you know, kind of like the basic work in order to create livable wages for people coming home to get them excited about opportunity? Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's great. It's the, the fair chance hiring uh, concept. You know, once once the, these folks are out, you know, again, how do we how do we meet their desire and ambition with uh, with opportunity? No, that's 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 great. Yeah, and I think it's really simple. Just to add one last thing to that is is mm-hmm. you know our goal here at Bottom Bunk was to start at fifty percent formerly incarcerated, and then how are we just inching along to get further up? You know, for a company that has a hundred employees, what's ten percent? Ten employees, and that we can create you know uh, jobs that could you know, potentially change someone's life and alter someone's family. How, how impactful is that for something that's going to get done either way? Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's huge. And, and so, uh, we'll love for you to any parting words and, and where, and where can people lean into, uh, what Emilio is doing? Yeah, I, I would say that, that I'm heartened by the fact that, you know, uh, criminal justice reform is, is one out of not the, the issue that is, it's fully bipartisan. I, I, it's, it's, it's amazing that so many people uh, recognize that this is a major problem. And so my part in words would be to f- find something that you can do within this space. It could be, you know, volunteering. It could be, you know, signing petitions. It could be, you know, reaching out to your um, local uh, city council or, or, or legislators to push for uh, uh, free communications legislation, free education legislation for incarcerated folks. Uh, but when it comes to Emilio, uh, I, I'd recommend everyone to take a look at our website. There's a bunch of products that we have, a bunch of job openings and opportunities for folks to volunteer. Um, if folks would love to connect with me, uh, my email is just zoe at, at emilio.org. Um, and uh, yeah, I would love to, love to talk to anyone, especially folks that have had, uh, uh, have been impacted by incarceration, be it family members or or loved ones who would love to give us feedback on on the products that we're building, uh, some things that we may not be be, be seeing or, or, or we should be thinking about. Uh, we would love that feedback. Um, so yeah, just reach out to me or or, or check out our website and then send some feedback to us. We we really appreciate it. Absolutely, and, I, and I'll include Emilio. I'll include Bottom Bong, Off the Bunk, The Five Ventures, all those links in in the show notes uh, for anyone who's interested in learning more about criminal justice reform, uh, combating mass incarceration, reducing recidivism. Uh, and really connecting people to opportunity. Um, you know, again, all that information is going to be there. Cole, Zoe, I really do appreciate your time. It's very, it was very insightful, uh, driven conversation, uh, very action oriented conversation. So again, really do appreciate your time. And uh, this, sh- this episode will be up in, in a couple of weeks. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Take care.